I have a lot of hope in the future because of today's young people. And I think that comes from their inability to just sit by and watch things happen. Speaking specifically to college students, you don't have to wait until you graduate to have an impact. It can happen day one of your college experience. It can be happening in high school <laughs> and it does happen in high school. And that's our whole ethos in trying to work with college students is helping them remove barriers and realize that they have so much potential to create positive social change right here, right now. Hello, and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, your host, and I'm also the founder of the Goodness Exchange. It's the mothership website of this podcast, where we've been shining a light on insights and innovation, leaps of human progress for about a decade, stuff you wish was rising to the top of your newsfeed. Yes, there is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that none of us know enough about about yet, but we're changing that at the Goodness Exchange and here on the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. Over the past 10 years, I've been noticing this wave of aspirational commitment to the greater good in the next generation, the generation in college right now that we call Gen Z. This generation often gets a bad rap, but experience tells me that they might just save our shared future. And today we get an opportunity to really dive into this. The Gen Z has an inner light, a kind of fresh passion and aspiration, and they're having interesting thoughts about having working lives that can do good in the world too. They want to work for companies that are making the world a better place and doing good business, or they want to start their own great measures, and they are definitely change agents for our future. Today, we're going to meet Jenny Cox and Nathan Dietz from the University of Maryland's Do Good Institute. Yes, there actually is a Do Good Institute, and it's huge and it's growing and the University of Maryland is nurturing this demand for goodness and progress in the next generation in extraordinary ways. We can't thank them enough for recognizing this global potential. And if Nathan and Jenny's view of what they're all about is correct, then we've got a lot of goodness and progress coming up in the future as it becomes shaped by this Gen Z generation of social innovators. This is the kind of domino effect we can all celebrate. If the University of Maryland has this right and their backing continues to flourish in all these acts of goodness and progress, these amazing projects, these thoughtful social innovations, then we have a future that is going to be bright for all of us. I know this trend is happening on other campuses around the United States too. So let's hear more about a future that is very, very promising. Welcome, my friends, Nathan and Jenny. I have been wanting to talk to you guys since January when I discovered your work. And, and Jenny and I have been at it. <laughs> and you know, I think timing worked out pretty good because you guys just put out this huge report on your progress. And we'll talk about that sometime in this interview too. But I want you guys to start off by helping us understand that you guys are really doing an amazing job at meeting students where they are these days. It's so easy for us to think about ourselves at the college age and then think things are the same. But this next generation of college students has a whole different worldview about possibility and their role in it. So take it away, either of you. How about you, Nathan? Start us off on what we know about what our current generation of college students really want in their future. 
Yeah. Thank you, Linda. That's a good place for me to start because I, I don't do as much work as most people within the Duguid Institute with the students and student groups. My, my role is to do research, work on research projects, and I'm now the mm-hmm. research director. So but the, the work I do, I think, kind of gives a background and, and grounding to all the work that everybody else does, you know, working on actual programming. I'll tell you, you know, I think this is a trend that we've seen now for probably 20 years, maybe longer in America when it comes to entering college students nationally. Entering college students, there's a, a long running study that UCLA's Higher Education Research Institute does, and uh, it's called the American Freshman. They've been doing this since the, the mid-60s. And so there's a standard list of questions. They have long time series on a bunch of different questions. One of the questions is about the objectives that people might want to try to realize when they start college. And entering college students are asked to rank a list of objectives from not very important to super important. The percentage of students since about 1990s that have said that it's really important to help others who are in need has just been continually increasing a little bit every year. And the percentage of entering college students who say that it's important to make a good living, that's why they want to go to college. That indicator has also uh, just continued to rise. Now, in the last year, we have data, 2019, the percentage of of entering college students who said that both of those objectives are important is at least 80%. So, it's really something. I think if you think about young people and you imagine that they have these uh, these goals that might be intention somewhat, that they want to help people, but they also don't want to do that at the expense of financial security, financial future financial stability. Today's young people don't see that tension. They want to go to college so that they can achieve both goals. And I think that the students who come to us are entering uh, college students. When they come here, they're, they're already sort of imbued with with both of those objectives. They really want to accomplish both of those goals. That is such a lovely way to start us off. Okay, Jenny, to Nathan's point, I want you to add just maybe an anecdote or two about what you've seen over the scope of time as far as students, you know, their aspirations. Give us a comment about like real life aspirations of the students you're working with. Yeah, as Nathan was saying, students increasingly, they care a lot about a lot of different social issues. They come into campus, a lot of them right off the cusp of COVID-19, they've seen crazy, crazy things happening, right? So even recently and you know, throughout my time at the Duguid Institute over the last couple of years, that's a huge hot topic. Students are coming in and they've seen insane amounts of change over the last couple of years. They've had to be adaptive. They've had some of their most exciting life plans kind of like thrown to the rocks over the last couple of years. So students are in such a unique place when they're now coming to college and they're really like, they're thinking about their their hopes, their dreams, like what they're going to major in, what they want to study, but they're also realistically thinking about where the world is at right now. And, you know, so they, they can't proceed without thinking about those two things hand in hand. So I'm just blown away because like Nathan said, the students that we work with, some of these students come in and they are like, I've been running a nonprofit organization out of my basement for the last three years. Yeah. And I'm like, you're 18. <laughs> and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, but it's it's this idea of like, well, I'm doing what I can. I'm doing my part. You know, we have a, a student that is trying to f- like raise awareness for like anti-bullying work and is like, yeah, ever since high school, I've been running workshops and I wrote a book and I published this book. And now I go and I read my book to like classrooms, elementary classrooms about anti-bullying. 
And it's just okay. insane, right? Because then everyone on our team is like, what was I doing in college? That's a, like, yeah. <laughs> what, what, what was I doing like when I was in, in university? Definitely not that, you know? So we're just constantly inspired by students in that and, way. And I have to say that I, I think a point that, Nathan, you made that I, I don't, I don't want to just skim right over is that there was a time when we thought if you want to do good in the world, you just had to accept a really low standard of living and all about your life would be all about giving to others and you would scrape by. And Whoa. this generation doesn't see that that part of the equation at all, right? No. Well, I'll tell you this. I don't think, I think they're much less willing to stand for that, that conflict compared to previous generations. I mean, th the fact is, and this is, the, this is one of the you know real problems I think in American society, not crises but problems. But if you want to go to work in you know for instance the nonprofit sector, then most people just accept that it's part of the bargain that even though you're going to get a chance to do good, you're not going to get paid very much money and you're going to be overworked. It's I think a symptom of the fact that people don't take the nonprofit sector seriously when they think about all the contributions that, that nonprofit organizations can make. And they think of people, and there are a lot of people, I know this from my own experience, who don't even think that nonprofit, if you work in the nonprofit sector, that you get paid. There are all these misconceptions about the nonprofit sector, but I think more so than previous generations, today's young people take a look at the possibilities for what they what they want out of a career, what they want out of a job. And they don't, they don't see this conflict there either. They want to, you know, earn enough so that they can make a living wage, but they also, you know, insist on doing something that is going to promote social goals or at least not cause social problems. And that insistence is something that I really see the University of Maryland taking them up on it. I remember when I discovered the Do Good Institute and then realized it was part of the University of Maryland and then talking to Jenny at length a few times it's really baked in the cake at the University of Maryland. Each of you, how about you, Nathan? Start with how this is just baked in the cake for students at the University of Maryland now. Well, um, I'll tell you, I think that uh, our, our flagship event, in fact, the namesake of the Do Good Institute is the Do Good Challenge. And that is something I first came to, when the, the first time I came to the Do Good uh, Challenge finals, the big event that they have on campus, I wasn't even working here. Uh, I came because of a mutual friend said, hey, we should, uh, we should go and see what, uh, what, what Bob Grimm has going on up on campus. And Bob Grimm was my colleague and friend who I worked with when we were both feds. And he had only been at the University of Maryland for a year or two, and he had already put together this event. So we, you know, we said, hey, let's go up and see how this is. And it was just, it was really impressive because first of all, they packed a giant auditorium-sized room in the student union they had a celebrity group of judges, and they had three highly qualified, super impressive teams of social entrepreneurs competing for the grand prize in the finals. And every team had a little supporters group up in the balconies who were cheering and hollering when the, when the pitches were going on. The university's president was there. It was really something. And I thought, boy, that didn't take long at all. You know, this, uh, the imprint that the Duga Challenge has made on this giant university in hardly any time is pretty remarkable. And that was 10 years ago. I, I don't think anybody could have imagined how, how much bigger and broader and, uh, and deeper our imprint has, has become. Well, I do have to mention that you have impressed me, Jenny, with the, the facts and figures that you can that you can spat off. Talk to us about the trends 
Um, that first yeah. call, call that, yeah. that you and I have, I, I do have to say that I just cold called the Duguid Institute one day in a cold Vermont January day. And Jenny just totally sold me on this. And she could rattle off the facts and the trends in such a way that I must have walked with a spring in my step for about three days after that call with you. So talk to us about the trends. Yeah. Well, as Nathan said, we're in a really exciting time for the Institute, you know, roughly 10 plus years after we began working on this campus and working with college students to where now we're in a place where we're partnering, you know, we're housed within the School of Public Policy here at the university, but we don't just work with public policy students. We are working with engineering students. We're working with arts and humanities. We're working with like public health students, like all over the place, because all students are interested in this and real world applications for students in all departments and majors on our campus to create a positive change through their education. So yeah, we're at a place now where we're partnering with every single department on campus. And we offer a handful of different programs that, you know, it's like we're, we're able to hardly keep up with the demand. We have so many students that are interested. And as we're growing our team, we're able to offer even more opportunities. So we have all kinds of things. We have hundreds of students who have participated in our mini grants program. That's like small scale seed funding that we give to yeah. student clubs and groups. And then we get to see the impact later on that they create with that money that they're given, as well as like at this point, several hundred students who have participated in our impact interns program. That's where we're partnering students with local nonprofit organizations to kind of give them like a, an mm-hmm. entryway to experience nonprofit work, but they're also paid internships and we're able to support in that way and facilitate that, that pro- partnership wow. between students and the organizations. Yeah. And then I think like our accelerator fellows program to each semester, you know, fall, spring and summer, we're running an accelerator fellows program where students are able to scale up their impact with us over the course of a semester. So that's usually students that come to us already with a pretty like full fledged idea or organization, some sort of initiative they're already working on. And we provide coaching and skill wow. sets to kind of help train them up in that. So that's where I think for us, we we see the passion, we see the excitement that exists on this campus. And our goal as an organization is to essentially like give them the tools and give them all the resources they need, give them the structure and the support to really nurture that excitement, that passion that they have. And then hopefully for us, it's like, yeah, we give them those resources. And then we're kind of like, you know, wow. giving the support, but ultimately stepping out of the way because the students run with it. And yeah, it's, it's just so, so exciting to see. So it's an incredible time. And I think, you know, our building, we're in Thurgood Marshall Hall. It's a, a new building on campus. And we have this giant ah. red sign out front of the building that says do good. So I see it every day when I walk onto campus, I'm coming into work and it's like the sun hits it and it just looks like so brilliant. And it's one of the first stops that students incoming um, prospective students stop when they come onto campus for a campus tour is they walk across route one, our main, like main road on campus. And then they see the do good sign and then they, you know, proceed throughout their tour. And I just think it's what an incredible opportunity that that's like one of the first things they see and they see like, Hey, this is what's happening on the university of Maryland's campus. And like, what is that about? And, you know, I, sometimes I hang back at the edge of the tour group because I kind of just love to like listen in and hear as a tour guides, like, yeah, we're, we have, we're home to the Dugan Institute here where like you will be empowered and supported to solve real world problems and to make a difference. And we, we believe that you can, and we expect that you will. Right. <laughs> so I think it's, it's just such an exciting time that we're, we're so happy to be a part of. 
I that that sign is right underneath my window, so I can look out my window and uh, and see groups of parents and students with the tour guide coming over and seeing the Do Good Sculpture and hearing all about what Jenny was talking about. This is central to the pitch that the university makes to families who are considering sending their kids here. And I think it's good because now we're starting to experience the fact that we've got a lot a lot of students outside the School of Public Policy who are interested in trying to figure out how to be as creative as possible in using their own skills that they're learning in their own majors about how to address social needs, community needs. We've always had a little bit of that, I think, in the School of Public Policy. There are all kinds of different yeah, areas in right. public policy, so people come with different interests and uh, different objectives when they, they're thinking about project ideas. But now we're we're intentionally spending a lot more time with people, students, as well as administrators in the other schools in this giant university of ours, just showing them how to work with students the same way we do to uh, harness their ambitions and their energies and, uh, and teach them how to be entrepreneurs themselves. So when they come back to us, you know, sometimes we need to do a little bit of homework just to get familiar, like, well, I don't understand this aspect of engineering, but clearly they do. So we better figure it yes. out. Well, isn't that fundamental is that yeah. they're just starting at their working lives with the notion that they're going to do right by the world. It's not going to be something they're going to do after they make money or after they're successful or when I retire, worst case scenario. You know, yeah. they're, they're starting that right from day one. I'll tell you, I think that's true. And, um, and that's really important because I think young people who have these aspirations, who want to do good, in these in, in this way don't always get the kind of encouragement that they need i mean who knows who knows what how many more young people would actually be able to take advantage mm-hmm. of a situation like this if they had the opportunity mm-hmm. too often i think young people you know if if they approach if they're you know muster up the courage enough to approach community organizations and offer to volunteer organizations don't often have the welcome that I mean, I think they're they're apprehensive about the fact that young people want to come in and, and try to make a difference. I think a lot of organizational leaders aren't sure whether or not the costs of that are going to outweigh the benefits or not. And, and young people tend not to have money. They tend to have time and energy right. and passion. Right. So the contributions they can make to organizations are limited by that. So you put it all together, and if not for opportunities like ours, I worry sometimes about what young people you know, whether or not the energy and the passion the young people have in abundance is really going to get used the way that it should. Oh, it's so true. You know, and I I just, uh, we're going to take a quick break, but I want you to comment, Nathan, on this notion that there are probably a lot of parents these days who are doing these college tours, right, with their kids, who their lives have been changed through the pandemic and the chaos of the Mm -hmm. few years before the pandemic too. Mm -hmm. And so if, if I walked onto a campus and saw Mm -hmm. what your guys are talking about with my kids, and then I saw an an exhibit called change the world, (laughs) I would be like, cause you guys have an exhibit there, right? Called change the world. Yeah. We've got these like four giant screens down in the ground floor of our building and We've interviewed 10 different alumni who have participated in our programs or the Duga Challenge, all student success stories from the first 10 years on campus. And it's incredible. It's just like face to face, you're interacting with this screen. And it's like these speakers that kind of they're like Halsonic speakers. So it sounds like the person's talking right to you, telling you about what they accomplished during their time as a student. And a lot of these stories are continuing still to, th- to this day. And they didn't just end as, you know, during their time as a student, but they continued on and 
continue to have an impact. So it's a really mm. cool element cool. too that people get to come up and, and hear about the legacy. Okay, so let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll hear more about the value proposition in this, the legacy, the incredible legacy stories. We have so much to talk about. Let's take a break. You know how the constant negative noise in our digital lives feels like it's reaching a boiling point? Now, many of us have tuned out the news and social media almost entirely. Well, it doesn't have to be that way. There are newsworthy stories about amazing progress, innovation, leaps in human potential, and wonders in the natural world, and they're just not reaching the top of our feeds. We can have access to this, but none of us has the time or maybe even the emotional stamina to search through all the doom and gloom news to find what's right with the world. Okay, enter the goodness exchange. There, we are giving instant access to positive news for curious people. Did you hear about the recent Harvard study that found that exposure to just four minutes of good news can make you 32% less anxious and 18% more optimistic? Well, I don't know about you, but I need those kind of numbers in my life. So if you want to live with more joy and way less fear, it's really simple. First, you join us at the Goodness Exchange. Everyone around the world has the opportunity to access this kind of content. And we've promised no politics for about a decade, so you're safe from all that distraction as well. Second, you allow this new, more positive, balanced worldview to put a spring in your step again. It can change the way you react to your kids, your coworkers, everybody you come in contact with. And the stories we write about can make you the idea person in your circles. These challenging times call for us to wake up and take control of our perspective. The people who use the Goodness Exchange have the ability to react to the harshness of the world much different because they know way more about what's right with the world. And that's a resource. So subscribe to the Goodness Exchange, our YouTube channel and the podcast, and use this content to live a more expansive worldview. It is still an amazing world out there and you can be a part of it. Welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness. Okay, we're back with Nathan and Jenny from the Do Good Institute at the University of Maryland. You're right on this precipice of a time and a movement that I think people are going to start seeing in the next year or two just is everywhere. I see it because what we do at the at the Goodness Exchange and the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast is shine a light on what's right with the world. And of course, that is what you guys are swimming in, this conspiracy of goodness that, that we keep pointing people to. Okay, okay. I want you to talk to us, Jenny, about some legacy stories of incredible organizations, just mm-hmm. so we can really get a feel for how this actually plays mm-hmm. out on the ground. You've got a couple yeah. of great stories. Absolutely. Absolutely. As I briefly had mentioned at one point with the exhibit we have down in the ground floor of our building called Change the World, and it tells 10 different stories of impact from that was created by students here at the University of Maryland. I think one of my favorite stories from that exhibit is called What Happens with All the Leftovers. And it's all about, it takes us back to 2011. And there was a couple college students hanging out in a dining hall on campus pretty late at night, just doing homework, you know, chatting, hanging out. And they had noticed that, you know, the the dining hall staff was kind of clearing out the, the food cases for the end of the night and some of the food was being thrown away. 
And of course, these college students are curious both for their own interest of like, hey, you're throwing that pizza out and I could probably still eat. But also like, wait, what's what's going on with the food here? What is it going to be thrown away? What's going to happen with it? Ultimately, that kind of led to a question of theirs that was like, oh, so there is a, a good amount of food that is getting thrown out at the end of the night just due to limitations of like, you know, f- like food safety rules and things like that. But they're thinking like, can we extend the life of the food here? And like, maybe we can do something with it. So fast forward to then these students kind of starting this like very, you know, pieced together operation where they, uh, them and just their friends really at the beginning, it was just them and their friends that got permission from the dining hall would drive up 15 minutes before the dining hall would close, get all the leftover food from that hall. And then they would drive it, found like some other groups on campus that could utilize it, nonprofits, churches in the nearby area, all within a few miles of campus that could benefit from this food. And so at first it was just kind of very like, hey, like, okay, we're going to go this night. We're going to pick up the food. One of the students recalls that her car constantly after these experiences would just smell like baked beans because, you know, food food was spilling sometimes. It, it wasn't always the, the best system they had going. But, you know, they started to gain momentum and kind of became like an official campus club. And then they got other groups on campus, other clubs to agree to support these, you know, food recoveries that they were calling them to the yeah. point where they're like, why not every dining hall on campus? And why not every night of the week? Like we have a lot of food that could be repurposed. Exactly. So they, they started thinking about how can we grow this? How can we, you know, expand it? And ultimately these students ended up competing in our, what Nathan was talking about before, our very first do good challenge and talked about how for the the whole previous school year, they had been doing this and that they believed it could grow. It could be even bigger and why not other college campuses? And ultimately they won first place in the do good challenge. And I think so many people were just so inspired by college students who saw an issue and thought like, oh, I could do something about that. Like I have a car, I've got my friends. I know there's a shelter down the road that could utilize some of these resources Fast forward to today, this campus club, this student club, has now grown to a nationally recognized nonprofit organization that is also on 190 other college campuses and then also across stretches 46 states and District of Columbia. And to date, uh, they are now called the Food Recovery Network. To date, they've rescued 12.1 million pounds of food and donated 10.1 million meals. And I'm like, it blows my mind. It it started on University of Maryland's campus with a couple college students late one night. And now we've got, you know, a full-blown nonprofit organization that's doing incredible work. That's like, that was one of the first stories, one of the groups that we worked with in the early stages of the Duguid Institute. And we always think about it. We always, we always remember students from Food Recovery Network. I want you to comment on this, Nathan. What, was that before or after your time? And what, what are your thoughts on that whole that whole scene and the maybe the ripple effect? Can you comment on the ripple effect with these these programs? Sure, that was it was before my time. I, I was still I was still working in in the federal government at that time. But I think talking to Bob about how things were going at this new program, yeah. this new center that he was operating here at the university, that was one of the one of the real success stories. It's a great story to tell. The thing about it, and, and it took me, I have to admit, this is embarrassing for me to admit this. It took me way too long to realize just how this, how the Food Recovery Network could have operated. Because when I first heard about this, I thought, well, I understand why restaurants and dining halls and things like that don't make the food available. They can't do it. You know, there are federal sanitation or local local sanitation right. regulations 
that prevent people from going and taking the food. Because if you feed it to someone else and they get sick, then it's the restaurant or the dining hall that's going to be liable. I didn't realize this, but there was actually a bill that was passed in Congress, you know, sometime around the the beginning of the 2010s. And uh, it actually made it, it facilitated opportunities like this for people to rescue food and make it available to the hungry. And I thought, okay, well, First of all, that's great that, you know, that that solves the problem. Second of all, this little known public policy that our public policy students probably researched and discovered, you know, laid the groundwork for this incredible network that's doing Mm -hmm. that's involved in so many campuses nationwide. So, Mm -hmm. you know, giving up, got to give the recognition to the policy school for Mm -hmm. giving our students the the skills that they needed to Mm -hmm. learn about where this solution can come from. That is one thing you talk about the ripple effects. I think part of what we see and we all, you know, we see it because we have close relationships with many of our students who go through the graduate programs, especially they get jobs all over the place. First of all, like I was saying, you know, it's not just a federal service, but government service at at different levels and uh, state, county, city, as well as the nonprofit sector and even the private sector in areas where they can we can gain some social responsibility. I think that uh, one area where we see this ripple effect is just in the long-lived student groups and, and social enterprises. Not all the entrepreneurs that we work with have any intention of setting up something that can be institutionalized. You know, it's their idea. They're leading the project. They're doing great work while they're here in college. And after they're done, you know, maybe they don't want to carry it forward and that's fine. You know, though, in many cases, they'll carry something else forward. But when they do, uh, when the new generation of leaders comes up, comes aboard to start leading this existing enterprise, they take the organization and the initiative places that it hasn't, hadn't really seen before, you know, and because these people come from their own networks within the university, they can yes. inspire their own friends and colleagues to do something else. You know, and uh, you made me think of something while you were commenting there. You know, there's mm-hmm. this huge movement in in this world about social responsibility, social op- entrepreneurship, corporate social responsibility. I think we're heading into a time when corporations will absolutely be clamoring for your students because there is a, I, I don't know if you've heard this statistic, but 69% of consumers now self-identify as values-driven consumers. So they're making their consumer choices, wow. 69%. And that grew 17% in, 19, in 2018. Like, <laughs> think how hard, think how hard industry uh, tries to move the needle a half a percent on consumer sentiments, 17%. Yeah. So we're headed in a direction where corporations are going to need to hire people who have this in their heart, who have yeah. this in their educational background, who have the the energy to look at things with super fresh eyes. And so I think that that corporate CSR part of the equation may over time be something that you see just builds a whole lot of demand. Then people will, they will need people who come from mathematics backgrounds, literature backgrounds, you know, whatever engineering backgrounds with that same, that same ethos baked into Mm -hmm. their way of being. Well, yeah, I just, I think that leads in really well to what, I think the University of Maryland really values, and especially within the Duke Institute too, is immersive learning experiences and creating environments where students, their work is not in vain. It's going towards something that not only is going to create incredible opportunities down the road for them, but they're they're learning about like truly like really important issues while they're in class. And I think 
that's something we've tried to, like, as we talked about, you know, it's being baked into the cake is that, you know, students are here and they're taking courses. So why not learn about philanthropy? Why not have these like challenges or competitions within class where it's like, hey, we're going to, we're going to all come together and we're going to brainstorm. We're going to talk about things that you, issues you see on campus in the community. And we're going to put all our energy towards like, hey, your project this semester in your policy class, in your Com 107 class, your your persuasive, you know, speech like class, we're going to talk about these issues and we're going to infuse it into your curriculum. So we we have a handful of courses that we're involved in here at the university. Some of them are called things like Do Good Now. Some of them are policy classes, but some of them we partner across campus. So some are like general education courses that count towards your, your general credits. But one of those is called Do Good Now. And I think that course is also uh, an educational course that we have seen really cool stories come out of. And one of those stories is a student group on campus called Get Over It. I love their name. And you can potentially guess that they they work towards combating the inaccessibility to menstrual products here on our campus. And Mm -hmm. when we are talking about just the general attitude, I think of younger generations of Gen Z in particular, and this inability to just accept the status quo. And this is something we saw in in these students. So it started with, I think back in 2018 or 2019, a group of six students that were taking this course who were tasked with, you know, taking a social issue that they felt personally connected to and thinking through in in the the course of this class they were taking, what is a solution that you think you could propose or innovate for this on our campus? And so ultimately they thought about like, why, you know, why are these products inaccessible on our campus? Why couldn't they be in every single bathroom? And um, why couldn't there be free dispensers? Yes. yes you know, yes. and Nia, I think you had a, a really interesting point to this. Well, it, it was after the fact. I mean, uh, we followed it along. Of course, you know, I, this is one of my personal favorite student run social enterprises because I think it just seems so obvious. After this was made university policy, now there are free supplies in women's restrooms all over campus. And the goal of Get Over It has is, is pretty much been realized. You know, it's been, it's been baked into university policy. And there was a story in the student paper, the Diamondback, uh, where they interviewed somebody from the student council just talking about the fact that this finally got done. And uh, that, that was kind of the tone of the, the comment that, that was quoted from the person who was quoted here, because the quote was something like, well, I mean, you wouldn't expect people to buy their own toilet paper and bring it to campus, would you? I mean, that doesn't, doesn't make any sense. And I thought to myself, that is just perfect. You know, some, not often, ideally, right, you'd want the education to come before the solution, but it happened the other way around in this case. And that's a message that, like I was saying earlier, you know, when you hear it, you think like, I can't believe this is now only, only now this is occurring to me. And second, how can anybody disagree? Like even the most hard-headed old guy, who, who, for whom these issues just never crosses his mind, you know, we'll, we'll think about that and go, well, mm-hmm. I mean, that is obvious, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I just, I think it's, it's a testament to the persistence of the students because yeah. this, this happened over several years. It was not an easy solution. They had to push really hard for it. And of course they got hit with COVID in the middle of this whole process, yeah. right? They were gaining momentum in 2019, I think, and had gotten a lot of agreement from campus offices that were willing to support and wanted to provide some grant funds to support free menstrual products in bathrooms on campus. Then COVID hit and they were slammed with like so many closed doors. 
And but then ultimately, after, you know, a period of time, there was some unutilized budget funds from the Student Government Association who really like kudos to them as well for jumping on this and saying, like, we need to support this and we we need to show up and show out for what we value. And so they were able to give a substantial grant to Get Over It that provided them with the resources for a three year pilot program. And ultimately, like the, the pilot program saw a lot of great success across campus mm-hmm. and then Get Over It competed in our Do Good Challenge. And that also helped kind of keep the momentum going and, you know, showcased, like put them on a larger stage to say students on campus care about this and we as a university should care about it too. So all of that fast forward to now, we're now on campus today, we have over 400 dispensers and 100 academic buildings and the university has agreed to adopt this like into their budget. Like it's no longer a pilot program and it's, you know, across all these different bathrooms on campus, gender neutral bathrooms as well, so that they're accessible for everyone who needs them. And yeah, I just, I think it's great to see you come into campus and if you're a visiting student as well, to be like shocked, I'm sad that we're shocked to see that, but cool to see, Hey, this is really valued and my education is a top priority here. You know, I, I, my, I had a daughter that was interviewing at various engineering schools all over the Northeast. And in the end, she made her decision based on how many times she, she had people open the door for her on her campus tours, because that indicates a level like a social contract about being nice and courteous and helpful to others. And it turned out that the school she chose, she never had to open a door once at that school. And they they did not have that level of competition, fierce comp- competition that is usually mm-hmm. in engineering schools. So I'd love for you to comment, Nathan, on now that this is spreading campus wide and has influences and pretty much I'm sure every single person every single person on campus knows that you're a part of, of a, a student experience. Talk to me about what you think that means as far as the future goes which, with education and what this says about the next generation and what they will ask of us who are providing their, their education for often a great investment. Yeah. I think that's the last, the last point that you made is the most important one because I think people are, people are wondering now college costs so much. If you don't have the money, you need to jump through so many hoops to get the money. And then there's the question of how or whether you're going to be able to pay it back after you graduate. A lot of people are looking at the, just the, the college experience and they're wondering, you know, is this really going to be worth it in the end? I think it drives the percentages that we see in these two indicators. I want to do good, but I also want to make a good living because if you go to college, you pretty much have to make a good living after you graduate or else you're never going to get out from under your student debts. When students are facing that and after they've made the commitment to go to college, they're demanding that the, the value proposition be in their favor, that this has to be worth it. This has to be worth the cost. And that I didn't something- want us to get out of this conversation without talking about value proposition. Just give uh, give us a little bit more of a definition of what that means to you, because I think we all already know what it means. But I, I'm sure there's a real, you know, there's a real concrete way to define the actual calculations we're making as parents and students when we decide to invest somewhere. Yeah. I'll tell you, you know, it's a, the value proposition was very different from people from my generation because the idea was you went and you went to college, you, you might or might not have needed to go into debt to some extent, mm-hmm. but that's okay because you get out, uh, you make your place in the world, you get settled within a community, you get a good job, you earn enough money to pay off your student 
student loan bills. And then, you know, not only then you continue on with your career, you raise a family, maybe you buy a house, you accumulate wealth. And, you know, you have the opportunity to build, build this sense of security that people have always just almost come to take for granted that that's right. what you get when you become an adult. I think today's college students, may are, they're sitting there thinking like, okay, well, if I go into debt, when am I going to get to the point where I feel secure economically or otherwise? Yeah. And that is something where if, if you know, it's, it's, it's awful that, you know, students feel that way if they're, if they do feel that way while they're in school. But if they do, I think it's, it's everybody's obligation if you work for a higher education institution to try to figure out what to do about that, because that's just terrible. I mean, that's a, it's just not something that it, it's something that today's young people need to confront to a much, much, much greater extent mm-hmm. than I did. You know, and I think what you guys are doing is something very interesting. You're giving people civic skills. Yeah. Along with a teaching degree, civic skills, along with it, with an engineering degree or mathematics or whatever it is. And that to me, I think the next generation of employment and really good jobs is going to be people who bring more than one thing to the table with them. The competitive edge is going to be somebody who's, who's an art major and an engineering major and can make those two, you know, find the sweet spot where nobody else lives that creates new things. And I think what you guys are doing as far as civic skills is super Talk, talk to us a little bit about that, Nathan. I think the most important civic skill, and uh, um, it's something that it, it fits in well with the mode curriculum administration that we actually prefer within the Dugan yeah. Institute. Experiential education, like Jenny was saying, is yeah. critical to this because it promotes the, the, most, the single most important civic skill is just working together with other people to solve problems. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, sometimes it's as simple as that. You know, you don't need to create your own high-powered nonprofit organization that's 501c3 tax exempt, you know, you don't really need, even need to build anything, what you need, to, but you do need to be able to work effectively with other people yeah. to try to meet common goals, you know, and then, then to address community needs. You may not realize it when you're in college that you will eventually need to do that. But I think that's one of the things that every adult realizes once they get into yeah. the quote unquote real world is that yes, you will. In the workplace, you know, I think that's where most people expect it to happen, but it happens, you know, increasingly often in our off hours, just at home within our communities. So with that, I think these, these civic skills, our students come out of our programs, not just with degrees, not just with academic credentials, but with experience and hopefully good experiences of working with others successfully to try to solve these, these problems. Well, you know, and that's what it all is, whether it's we're talking about, you know, social endeavors or business and organizational challenges or just the future of almost anything right now is changing. There's just no doubt about it. And I love something we haven't talked a lot about is this social entrepreneurship, this advent of B Corps and one for the planet corporations, people that are starting businesses like for-profit businesses, but they're making a commitment to the greater good from day one. It's baked into the cake there in their businesses from the start. And I love your take on the grilled cheese story in that light, Jenny, because, you know, those folks learned about entrepreneurship as much as they learned about, you know, the greater good. So tell us about the grilled cheese story. Yeah. Yeah. This is another one of our favorite stories that we do tell in our Change the World exhibit as well. 
So it all goes back to a student who was in one of our Do Good Now courses, and they were kind of tasked with coming up with some of the craziest fundraising ideas that they could muster. And the student also was a part of a group on campus called Students Helping Honduras. Now it's called 1000 Schools. But yeah, they were they were in this place of thinking like, okay, what is some of the craziest, you know, a fundraising ideas I could come up with? And they thought about grilled cheese and how much they love grilled cheese and thought, hey, let, let's start selling grilled cheese. And but ultimately, like the, the timing and the place of where they decided to do this was really paramount to their success because they... They set up shop right here on Route 1, kind of outside of a lot of like the, the restaurants and the bars. Late Friday, Saturday night, they would be there sometimes out till 1 a.m., right? They're out there. They're cooking their grilled cheese on this little table. And, you know, they they found insane success with this. And I think one of the students had commented that on average, they were raking in $1,000 a night from this, right? Can you imagine like, and I think their grilled cheese are only selling for maybe $2 each, right? So like they had a ton of students just coming by like, yeah, gr- buy grilled cheese. Like I'm hungry. And at the same time, they're like, yeah, we're trying to raise funds. We're trying to support the building of more schools in Honduras. And, you know, their organization was working to also combat a lot of the gang violence there. And so they're like pitching their, their idea and like what they're trying to do, but they're also like buy my grilled cheese. And yeah, that's another crazy story because ultimately they were, their fundraising goal was $25,000 to provide the materials that they were needing for a school in Honduras. And they had gotten to 19,000 with their grilled cheese fundraisers and they were 6,000 short and their deadline was coming up. And once again, they also competed in the do good challenge and people were so blown away with just like their tenacity and their idea and their willingness to just like do what needed to be done. And they won top prize, which at that time was I think $6,000 and they hit the 25,000 goal which is just so crazy. But it just shows like college students, man, like you start with what you have and the resources that are at your disposal. And yeah, like Nathan was saying, like it it doesn't always have to be creating a whole new thing, starting a whole new organization. Sometimes it's as simple as like, I'm a college student and I I can make grilled cheese. Like, (laughs) well, I mean, it it goes, it, it, it says something about how pragmatic I think College, college students are, young people can be. And partly that's driven by the fact that they have things that they want to do. But they also realize that, you know, of course, if we want to do something in certain cases, if you want to try to make uh, certain outcomes happen and have certain types of impacts, then you need particular types of resources. And if right. you need money, you need money. And whatever you need to do to get the money, well, that's not whatever you need to do, but yeah. they're not motivated by the idea that you need to avoid making money if you're going to try right. to do good. Mm-hmm. You know, that sometimes, you know, making money in order to do good is perfect, is not just okay. It's the only yeah. way you can actually get the necessary resources that you need to make right. certain things happen. Right. Yeah. Lovely. So you guys are in the DC area. So a lot of people might think that are listening to this, that, that the people out of the Public Policy Institute go and work for the federal government. And and maybe there was a time when pretty much if you went to the University of Maryland, maybe that's what you were planning to do is to work with the DC area complex that's there. So if, the, if people hear you guys referring to the feds, it's the federal government. And the second thing, but I, and I want you to comment on that because you were going to talk about that particular aspect of what's happening in jobs today and what's happening in jobs in the past. So why don't we start right there? 
thank you because that that's an important way to connect the present to the past, especially with our mm-hmm. school of public policy. About 40 years ago, a little more than that, we just had our 40th anniversary, I think, a year or two ago. But the original the, the original plan for the school of public policy was to, to uh, give people the training that they needed to be effective federal employees. And part of what was interesting, part of what was distinctive about the programs that we offered, uh, the master's programs in particular that the school offered back in the 80s and 90s, uh, because there were other universities in the area who had the same sort of ambitions. But our, our distinctive feature was that we emphasized the moral elements of being an effective member of the federal service, feds in shorthand. And that was something that, you know, it's, it's one thing to, to learn the mechanics and the nuts and bolts about how to work for a federal agency or lead a federal agency, but, you know, what kind of moral yes. underpinnings that that position required. I think people didn't talk about it much. And, uh, and it was just assumed that if, if you were influenced by what we call in the literature public service motivation, that you were automatically going to be oriented toward, you know, sort of good moral goals. And that's that was true. I think that model served us pretty well for many years, our school. But I think uh, over time, we've come to realize that many of our students, when they graduate, they don't take jobs in federal service. Many do. Right. And that's great. You know, it's, still, it's, it's not like we discourage that. But many of our students take jobs in the private sector. Many take jobs in the nonprofit sector. And, and that, these are trends, I think, that it's not just they don't just hold for our students. They hold for young people in general. You know, there, there are many sectors in the labor force, in the economy, where you can earn a good living and have the opportunity to do good. And our students, you know, our students are interested in all of those. Yeah, you know, and something you brought up the other day in our pre-call that I really hadn't thought of, but I I know in all of our lived lives, the actual, you know, letting out the dog in the morning and taking out the trash in our real lived lives, there's room for people who have an education in public policy in local government too. I mean, this is, it's all starting to become about us living way more local than we used to. So that's part of the equation too, right? I it is. And, uh, and to me, that's a really positive goal. The, the thing about jobs like that, and this goes for this goes to some extent for uh, jobs in the federal government. It certainly goes for jobs in the nonprofit sector. And I think maybe at least as much as those two types of careers, it goes for jobs in government that are not federal jobs. I mean, the federal government is nationwide, but even more nationwide is the network of state governments, local governments, all of which need people who are dedicated public servants and their expertise mm-hmm. to succeed. And I, I hope that we are becoming more locally oriented, that more people are realizing the value of building strong communities. But I also think that strong governments, you know, especially at the local levels, are, are pretty essential to, in many cases, encouraging the type of uh, yeah. type of the work that that it takes to build the communities that we all want to live in. Right. And that is such a good point. The communities we all want to live in. I interviewed a very important educator who's got a new thought on education. And one of his things is um, educating children that grow up to be adults we all want to work with and live with. (laughs) (laughs) That's about as basic as you get, right? That's one of those ideas when when you hear it expressed like that, you think to yourself, I, you know, I don't know why anybody, I can't believe I never thought of that, A, and B, how could anybody disagree? 
Yeah. Yeah. That is, um, that's an episode with a, with a Buddhist monk who has adopted over 130 children. So I'll make sure that the links to that episode are in the show notes. So Nathan, tell us anything that you think is important that, that, that you really want to make sure we know as we go out of this interview, something that you found wondrous or, or insightful or kind of a myth that's been busted in your, in your own mind. Yeah. I'll tell you, I think that the myths that have been busted in my own mind, I, I, try to devote as much time as I can to making sure that I bust the myth for as many other people as possible. One is, and I teach nonprofit finance. So uh, I get a chance to harp on this from day one, literally, but the nonprofit sector doesn't, it's, it's just not true that the nonprofit sector has nothing to do with, uh, with raising money or acquiring financing. It's just not, people think that it, it interferes with the purity of what nonprofit organizations do if they spend too much time soliciting money. And I don't think that's true. And what's more, I think today's younger generation, I think many of them have come to realize that, you know, that just doesn't make any sense. You, you need money to do certain things. You can also do good. It's part of, it's what they come to college believing that, that uh, is possible and they're trying to attract, they're trying to achieve both of those goals pretty much from day one. So right. when they go to nonprofit organizations, they don't go into it with that misconception. And it's good because, you know, people who work at nonprofits should not have that misconception. The other right. thing that I think young people today uh, realize that maybe older generations don't is that if you volunteer, you know, your activity should totally be selfless and uh, directed toward other people and not yourself. Mm-hmm. Volunteering is great. People, it's a really enjoyable activity. It can make you feel like you're making an important difference. And that is a serious benefit to anybody. You know, I think most people want to feel that way, that they're able to, they're able to work with others to, to, you know, fix problems within communities. It's perfectly okay to be motivated by self-interest if you're going to volunteer to help other people. Like those two things are not mutually exclusive. They never were. But I think today's young people are, you know, just be, in the same way as they combine career goals with, with community goals. They're trying to find opportunities to help other people, and they don't mind at all if, uh, if they benefit themselves. So and yeah. I think we could all take a lesson from that. It's so huge. You know, you and I talked about how during the pandemic, I'm a dentist and I would talk to people who'd lost their jobs or whatever. My first thing would be to ask them, you know, what do you love? Is there someplace you could volunteer for now? I mean, you've got time on your hands. And then the first time minute somebody retires, you know, no organization likes to hire outside the organization, an unknown person, if they don't have to, if there's somebody right in their midst, who's motivated and knowledgeable and ready to just step in. And so I think this, this using volunteerism from both a altruistic motivation and some self-interest is like a major shift in society that might get us onto the next the next level a little bit faster too. I, well, I hope so because I think we need to, yeah. we need to reach another level here pretty soon to solve the problems that, right. that, that, that we notice all the time. Okay. As we wrap up here, I want each of you to give us a little peek behind the curtains. You know, you know so much and you've seen so much that the rest of us can't even imagine, you know, we're just inundated by the doom and gloom in the, in the news, but you guys probably walk around with a spring in your step that we can never imagine because you know so much about human potential and the best in others. So each of you, please take a turn at this question. I try and end the podcast with every, every time. What do you really wish people knew? Like in those moments when you 
see something and it, you just want to go, oh my gosh, I really wish people knew what. How about you, Jenny? Start us off. Yeah. I mean, I think plain and simple, I have a lot of hope in the future because of today's young people. And yeah. I think that comes from their inability to just sit by and watch things happen. Speaking specifically to college students, I think when yeah. people, I wish people knew that you don't have to wait until you graduate to have an impact. Um, it can happen day one of your college experience. It can be happening. I mean, we see this. We It can be happening in high school <laughs> and right. it, it does happen in high school, but you don't have to wait until you graduate to have an impact. And that's our whole ethos in trying to work with college students is helping them remove barriers and realize that they have so much potential to create positive social change like right here, right now. Perfect. How about you, Nathan? Very very similar answer to Jenny's. I think that I have a hard time hearing people who want to criticize this youngest gener- you know, generation of youngest young adults, college age uh, young people, thinking if they, if they talk about the fact that they spend way too much time goofing around playing video games, that type of thing. I, I can tell you that, at least on campus here, that it's just a night and day difference between that view of this generation and how they actually, how students here actually behave. They don't have any leisure time, as far as I could tell. They're either in school or and or they're working and or you know they're they're trying to find ways of doing something good within the communities. I mean, it's part of it's leisure time for them. Leisure activities for a lot of our students involve trying to help other people, and it, it gives you hope in part because it makes you realize that. You know, just like we've seen in the past, it's not the end of the world that when the older generations who have been the most committed people and communities to solving problems, when they start to leave the scene, you hope that there are going to be other younger generations coming along to take their place. And I, you know, I think you see that I have much higher hopes, you know, for this generation of young adults than I did, than I did even at the time for my generation of young adults. I think they have that much on the ball. I think their commitment, their passion, their energy, and their skill that uh, that they bring, they're going to bring to solving community problems, are going to rescue us from a lot of problems that you know we either didn't resolve or even created. Lovely. Oh, those are two really heartfelt things that that um, kind of validate my personal worldview. And I think that you will do the same for many others. So thank you guys for sharing this hour with us. And I will personally do everything I can to get this message out. So I'm sure you're going to inspire a lot of people. You know, what do people do after an episode like this? I want people to know what to do next. Like, what would you like people to do next? Do you you give us some contact information or what have you, whatever you'd like? Yeah, I mean, well, obviously we're we're doing something here at the University of Maryland that we hope can take off and can spread to other campuses. We hope that we'll see other large institutions, educational institutions create similar models of like experiential learning, but also with like philanthropic education, with education surrounding social impact. But I think just when it comes down to like everyday people, just remembering that like we can't function in life as an island that community support is so important and you got to look up and see what people are doing around you. And I think that just requires you to live as authentically as you can be vocal about what you care about, be vocal about what your passions are. Don't 
keep it to yourself. And I think you'll start to attract and find other people who feel similarly to you. And the momentum goes from there as we talked so much about nonprofits. And there's such an insane network across America of nonprofit organizations, people who are doing incredible work. And a lot of times the issues, they don't know about each other. They're not working together. Sometimes we are all kind of like on our own little island. So I think just recognizing that and you know, with the goal of realizing like, if we're all working together in this, we're going to get so much further, you know. Lovely. How about you, Nathan? What can people do next from your point of view? Can they contact the University of Maryland? What, like, let's say there's some, our demographics is college educated women age 45 and older, and they have college, college age kids. Do they just call the University of Maryland and say, sign me up, sign my kid up? Both? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, that, that is actually uh, that target group in particular, I think, is, you know, they're almost anybody's kid uh, could benefit from coming to the University of Maryland. I think yeah. we have a lot to offer people from all, all sorts of different backgrounds. And, and I would encourage that. But I think that Jenny's message to end with, you know, we, we work within a university and there are lots and lots of great people here. But many people don't go to this university in this area. Many people don't go to any college or any university at all. They're part of our communities too. And it's not that, you know, we should, we here within the university should be focused on going out and helping them, quote unquote. I think it's, you know, everybody should try to make it their objective to, no matter what they're doing, just see other people, treat other people with respect, be, you know, just learn, find ways if possible to work with other people to, to try to solve community problems. It doesn't have to be centered around the university. It can be centered and it should be centered within each individual community because I think they're the raw material that that's inherent in the people that come to us when they're 18 years old is there and a lot of other people too. That is such a great point to end on. The raw material for the kind of folks that would be attracted to the Duguid Institute is in yeah. every community and every neighborhood mm-hmm in the world, I, I would guess. Yeah. We just yeah. need to start shining a light on that, rewarding it, lifting it up. And I suppose with that kind of effort, all the boats in the harbor float a little bit higher. Well, we'd love to find out just how high. <laughs> okay. Let's just find out. Okay. You're on. <laughs> I'll do my part. I'm at it for the last 10 years. Well, thank you to so much. I hope that folks will go to the Goodness Exchange, the website at the Goodness Exchange, which is the mothership of this podcast, and find countless articles there about organizations that folks like they are nurturing at the college level. People have gone on and we write about folks who are doing good in the world from every possible topic. And that this knowledge about that view of your fellow man and and humanity and what's going on out in the world will start to fill your worldview with a different narrative than the one we're getting from the negative news. And these two folks are here doing their part. And I'm sure every person that listens to this podcast has something they're uniquely built to contribute. So we all encourage you to follow those impulses too. I hope your week is good. And you'll join us at the YouTube channel for the Goodness Exchange, where excerpts from this episode will be filling and gracing that channel and helping future people to come with ideas that we can't even imagine at this point. Thanks, Nathan and Jenny. Thanks so much, Linda. Thank you so much. All right. Have a great day, everyone.